It took us exactly a year that we are here. So turn with me to the end of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 22. Listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share on the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word, as we finish this amazing book of Revelation that we've been in for a year, we pray you would give us a longing for heaven. That as we see what John saw, we would run headlong into the future, gloriously awaiting the heaven you have prepared for us. Overwhelm us as you overwhelmed John. Lord, it's our prayer that we would see Jesus and love him and stick close to him as our great God and King. And it is our prayer, God, that one day by grace we would see you face to face. Do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus we pray, amen. Last words are very special. In the movie Saving Private Ryan, there is a vivid scene at the end of the movie when Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, has been shot several times and he is dying from his wounds. He has risked his life and the life of his team in order to complete his mission, a mission given to him by General George C. Marshall of Leesburg, Virginia. 
that he has to go out and save Private James Francis Ryan and bring him back to his family since his other four brothers have already been killed in World War II. And Captain Miller was now laying down his life, as had several other members of his team. And this final scene shows him leaning against the half-track, shooting at an approaching German tank with a 45 caliber pistol. The tank explodes, and he looks at the pistol, wondering what had happened. Seemingly unaware that close air support has arrived just in time to stop the German attack and turn the battle. And as he lay dying, he grabs hold of the shirt of Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon. And he says, James, earn this. Earn it. And those are his last words. And the scene fades then to a modern day picture. And at the very end of the movie, we come back to the beginning where Private James Francis Ryan is now an elderly man. And he has arrived at the famous American cemetery in Normandy, France. And he has his whole family with him. And he comes to the grave of John Miller, the high school English teacher from Pennsylvania, who became an army ranger and who gave his life for him. And he gets down next to the tombstone with the engraved cross. And he says, every day I think of those words that you said to me on the bridge, and I have tried to live my life as best as I could, and I hope that it was enough, and I hope that at least in your eyes I have earned what all of you have done for me. And then he gets up and he slowly looks at his wife and says, tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. And he looks to be justified by his wife, who looks at, up at him like, what's wrong with you, and says, you are. Those last words of John Miller were unbelievably important for James Ryan because a captain gave his life to save a private. You can easily connect the dots to today's passage and to Jesus, who is the commander of the Lord's army. You can easily connect the dots to the one who gave his life for AWOL soldiers who defected and switched sides. And of course, that would be us. We're the ones who are rebels against God as we love sin when Jesus died for us. Romans 5, 8, but God chose his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so these are our captain's last words in Revelation. Nothing else is to be added or taken away. This is it. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, earn this, earn it. Instead, he is saying to us, you can earn it, and you'll never deserve it. And that is why I have earned it for you. And this is why the last verse of the Bible is so important. Notice it doesn't say the guilt of the Lord Jesus be with all. It says the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. So let's take a look at the last words of our captain, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the first thing we see here is the last testimony. The last testimony, that's the first blank in your outline. I've been away a bunch this summer, and it feels good to be back in this chair. 
Because this text is repetitive in parts, we're not going to take it straight through, but we're going to look at the different pieces. The first one, the last testimony, is verses 6 and 16. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. As he began the book, John told us he was part of the process of this testimony of Jesus Christ being delivered to the churches. Go all the way back to the beginning, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. It came from God who gave it to Jesus, who in turn sent his angel to deliver the message to the apostle John, who gave it to the churches. And the church, by the Holy Spirit, continues to bear testimony to Jesus Christ. And as part of this testimony, we're given the last promise. The last promise. Look at those verses that are listed there. Verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 10, He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. It's interesting that in this final chapter of the Bible, we have recorded for us in triplicate the parting words of Jesus Christ, I am coming soon. If they were just the last words in Revelation, we would regard them as important, but their repetition and the fact that they're Jesus' words makes them all the more important. Obviously, these words were meant to be encouraging. John is exiled on the island of Patmos, and the Christian church at the end of the first century needs encouragement. And that encouragement comes to them in the form of the promise of Jesus coming. It calls for us to stop what we're doing, to come to our senses, to turn from the idolatrous ways of the world, and to gather our forces and focus on the reality that the King of glory will return. This does not call uh, for us to develop uh, some time scheme or cool charts about his coming, but to face the reality of it and to live in light of his coming. It is in view of these very things, the last testimony and the last promise that John is told in verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. This is in fact mirroring, is that a word mirroring? It is now. Mirroring in reverse something which the prophet Daniel was told. He was told exactly the opposite near the end of the book of Daniel. And there he was told, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Daniel was told to seal up the words of the prophecy that he was given because it referred to a time in the future when God would fulfill all the prophetic passages and promises of Scripture. And only after these prophecies were fulfilled could the seal be broken. 
John, on the other hand, is living in a time when these prophecies of Daniel have been fulfilled. The divine yes in Jesus Christ has been uttered, 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God's deliverance have come to their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And now only the second coming remains. That is the next great event marked out on the calendar of God's redemptive plan for history. It is the last promise. Thankfully, it's accompanied by the last Beatitudes. The last Beatitudes, verse 7 and 14. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. This beatitude or blessing in verse 7 picks up the same point as the first beatitude in the book of Revelation back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. To keep, to obey, one must first read and hear. This leads to study and contemplation and attentiveness in order to obey. And to those who respond to the words of Jesus' coming, there is held out the promise of great blessing. And great blessing it is. John has seen it now for the last 21 chapters. John has glimpsed heaven. And again, what a great blessing it is to have those who have washed their robes. Um, he describes to them the glory of this city and its garden of Eden-like beauty with the tree of life moving out from the throne of the Lamb and lining the banks of the river of life. In other words, the book of Revelation it's not meant to entertain us. It's not meant merely to stir up our imagination. It's not intended to satisfy our curiosity about the last days. Instead, Revelation calls us to action, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ as God moves the universe towards the full revelation of his kingdom. It urges us to live like kingdom citizens while living in the midst of a rebellious world. It sees the work of the gospel as it calls us into relationship with the sovereign Lord as the means to transform the world in which we live. Revelation insists the answer to the human dilemma is not found in the political or economic structures of civilization. The answer is found in the Lamb of God. Revelation 5.9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And here at the beginning of verse 15, 14, we read, blessed are those who wash their robes. We've already seen that language in Revelation. Revelation 7, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In that passage, one of the elders explains the presence of believers gathered in worship around the throne. And he looks at the reason they're around the throne. They have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. The robes symbolize the whole character 
even the whole person. It's why the bride of Christ, who is the church, is clothed the same way, Revelation 19. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But to those who much is given, the right to wear the washed robes, much is expected. And so next we receive the last command. The last command, verses 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John's instinctive response to these beatitudes is to fall down and offer worship to the angel who has served as his guide. And what John discovers is that the angels are utterly intolerant of false worship. He says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. To begin with, no creature should ever worship another creature. The angel called himself a fellow servant with you, with humility, although you know, a powerful creature that has come from God's presence to instruct John. We've seen lots of angels in the book of Revelation. And if you learned anything about angels, don't mess with them. Okay? If you learn anything from the book of Revelation about angels is you don't trifle with them. The book of Revelation is filled of big angels. They carry swords. Be nice. But he places himself as a servant together with John and other believers. The angel has no inclination to be worshipped, which I think certainly distinguishes him from people. Because we would love to be worshipped. And yet what we see is that you know, idolatry's subtlety can snare us even by what is good. There's nothing wrong with the angel. The problem is in John's spontaneity of worship towards something better than himself, something which he found to be exciting and admirable. And the apostle momentarily finds himself snared by an idolatrous mind. And it shows us the depravity that still lurks in our hearts until God wipes all the tears from our eyes. One of Revelation's aims for the whole book is to deliver the churches from idolatry. If you remember, it was a problem at Pergamum, embracing false teaching, which leads to worshiping that which is not God, or offering worship to God in ways that he has not prescribed, or offering worship to a false view of God. These are idolatrous substitutes for worship. The church at Thyatira got caught up in idolatry that led to immorality. Typically, idolatry presents a wrong view of God's law. Some go to one extreme in making the law an idol through legalism, and others go uh, to the other point of thinking they're above God's law, and they become entangled in all sorts of immoral behavior. The church in Laodicea made an idol of their success, and yet they made Christ sick. There's a danger in every generation of churches 
being captured and enamored by wonderful, exciting, success-oriented things that ultimately amount to idolatry. Our vision of Christ must be clear. That's why his angel declares his partnership with those who keep the words of this book. And that command, worship God, excludes the worship of any other creature and narrows our worship to God alone as he has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. It's an all-consuming statement since worship involves more than just an hour or two on Sunday. It's the whole of one's life bent on glorifying, honoring, magnifying the Lord God, culminating in the corporate worship by the body of Christ. It's the grand occupation of the redeemed in the New Jerusalem. Hearing and keeping Revelation's message will ultimately lead us to worship God alone. And he alone is worthy of our worship because he's the last authority. He's the last authority. Look at verse 11. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Well, here we get the other side of the equation. There's blessing and promise, and there's authority. These words need to be understood within the parameters of covenant theology. Look at verse 11 again. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. In other words, those who respond in faith are given this promise that the blessings will continue forever, but those who respond with antagonism will continue in that condition forever. And as harsh as it sounds, the logic is very similar uh, to that the Apostle uh, Paul uses in Romans 1, where he said God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. C.S. Lewis remarked on this by suggesting that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And then in verses 13 and 16, we have the two I am statements in this chapter, much like the seven I am statements in John's gospel. In verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Clearly, this is a reference to Jesus' divinity, that he is 100% God. These claims to be the Alpha and the Omega and the first and the last are not something that's new. We find this repeatedly in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. This is exactly what God says about himself in Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And you need to know the God of Isaiah is the same God here. And then in verse 16, he says, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. And this is a reference to Jesus' humanity, that he's 100% man. He is the Messiah, the fulfillment of the prophecies of the prophets. He is a descendant of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The bright morning star is a reference to a prophecy in Numbers, in Numbers 24, 
I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Imagine somebody coming up to you and saying, I am the beginning. He would be saying, everything has its source in me. They exist because of me. They live and move and have their being because of me. They hold together because of me. I am the beginning and the end. That's what Jesus is saying. Preeminently, Revelation reveals Christ to his church. He declares his sovereign lordship. He declares himself to be the messianic king. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God's anointed, the promised one, the mediator of the new covenant, the king of kings and lord of lords. And he calls us to press on in faithfulness as Christians. And we do so by keeping an eye on his cross and by looking for his return. And that glorious tension urges us forward in faithfulness to our king. Because for those who aren't faithful, there is the last warning. The last warning, starting at verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I warn everyone who hears the prophecies of this book, jumping to verse 18. Prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Here is a dark sign. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and immoral and idolaters, people who practice falsehood. The ugliness of being outside the city is in stark contrast to the beauty of being inside the city. The outside is undesirable and ugly. It's offensive. It's destructive. There is no grace of any kind. Everything about the outside is contrary to grace and contrary to God. There is no possibility of change. There is no help offered. This is hell. And who is Jesus speaking to in this warning? He addresses everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Throughout Revelation, we've recognized that that it is a book for the churches. The indication is that the warning was for particular people in the churches who had thought of either adding to or deleting portions of this prophetic word. Remember the letters to the seven churches. You had the Nicolaitans waging their unbiblical influence in Ephesus. There were some in Pergamum who held to false teachings. The church in Thyatira followed a prophetess, a Jezebel, taught immorality. Don't give that name to your daughters. And the Laodiceans made an idol of their success. In other words, the call to live distinctly as Christians in the midst of the world, of persevering even in persecution, of laying down your life for the gospel doesn't fit into the doctrinal framework of false teachers. They may acknowledge some of the teachings of the gospel while adding their own particulars or deleting a few things that didn't suit them. And here's the testimony of Jesus Christ set in legal language. 
Jesus gives us a legal declaration in verses 18 to 19. And John affirms that Christ is the one giving us this testimony. And in so doing, he intensifies the warning of these verses. The stakes are high. Divine justice will be required of those violating this warning. And because of this great danger, John finishes his magnificent letter with the last invitation. The last invitation, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. You know, the idea of invitation is prominent in the evangelical vocabulary. But rather than seeing it as the call of Christ in the gospel, in some traditions, the invitation has become part of the worship service right after the sermon where interested people can indicate a decision for Christ or whatever the preacher's called for. Yet the Bible knows nothing of that practice. It was added in the 19th century to accommodate the revivalism that had swept through the churches. Instead, the real invitation is found in the gospel. It's declared whenever the gospel is rightly spoken, calling sinners to Christ. And why did this practice start? Because the church stopped doing something else. The church stopped doing something Jesus commanded it to do until he comes again. The church stopped serving the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. And then it discovered that the call of the gospel is in this table. The call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners is found in this meal. Coming to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ requires you to deny yourself, repent of your sins, trust in Christ as your Savior, and profess your faith in him before the eyes of the whole congregation on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why we do all the stuff that we do as we prepare to take communion. It's not some random sequence with routine words. It is a vivid reminder, a physical sign of the gospel of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ. We have an example of that call here in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Here we find the Holy Spirit and the bride, who is the church, working in concert, calling sinners to Christ. The Holy Spirit and the bride respond by shouting words of invitation to come to Jesus Christ. The bride is adorned in all her beauty and desperately wants Jesus to come and wrap up redemptive history and bring its fulfillment. Every obstacle has been removed. The consummation of time is finally here. And so we read the last prayer. It's short, but it's a great prayer. Verse 20, amen, come Lord Jesus. John's prayer echoes the last promise. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's an agreement. Amen. So be it. Complimented with a prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Why the anxiousness on John's part? For the same reason, believers throughout the centuries have prayed this same prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, Matthew uh, 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're embracing something of this same prayer of John, since ultimately, when Christ returns, God's kingdom will be fully established on the earth. 
And yes, we pray for his kingdom to come in the present so the evidence of God's kingly reign on earth may be seen, yet knowing that its fullness comes when Christ returns. So after the last prayer comes the last blessing. Revelation is a letter to the churches, and it ends with his pastoral blessing for grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Indeed, our ultimate need each day is for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're to worship rightly, to worship God alone and not the idols of the world, we need grace to do so. Grace informs our minds of the truth of God. Grace humbles us before God and enables us to set our affections upon him. Grace gives us the attitude and words that comprise our worship of God. If we're to persevere in faithfulness to Christ, we desperately need grace. How else can we overcome our own excuses or the barriers laid by the enemy or the temptations of the world? Grace implies that God is at work in our need, providing just what is necessary for us to do his will. He gets the glory because he provides the grace. None of us can keep on uh, pressing on in faithfulness in our own strength. We're far too weak. We're far too helpless. We need his grace. If we're to live distinctly as Christians, being marked by the character of Christ, we need grace, and we need a lot of it. How else can we practice patience in adversity, kindness in the face of ugliness, gentleness in times of opposition, and love even for those who do not love us? By grace. If we're to proclaim the gospel boldly, offering that gospel invitation to come, then we need much grace. Because our man-fearing spirit overwhelms us. Our fear of what others may say or do to us paralyzes us. Our fear of not having the right word, the right words to speak, silences us. How can we call upon our friends to come to Christ apart from grace to utter those words? We need grace to overcome so we can call others to Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. It's the whole church that needs grace. It says with all. Beloved, because of what Jesus Christ has done in his death and resurrection, because he reigns as sovereign Lord so that all power belongs to him, and because he is the eternal judge that gives to all men according that, uh, to their works, then to him we look for grace. And he gives it over and over again and again to helpless believers like us. This is our last study in the book of Revelation. These final paragraphs add clear words of exhortation to the multiplied metaphors and images of the book. The apostle John aims uh, to press on in faithfulness to Christ. He's giving us a living word, a sharp sword that exposes the thoughts and intentions of the heart, a hammer that shatters the stoniness of hardened hearts, a light that dispels the darkness of fear and despair with the aim to spur faithfulness in the face of worldly opposition. For those lost in the middle of all the seals and trumpets and bowls, John calls for knowing the power of the triumphant lamb's death and resurrection. 
For those squeamish in the face of suffering for the gospel, he gives stunning reminders of Christ's return as eternal judge. And he calls for the church to act the part as the bride of Christ, to no longer swallow the idolatrous ways of the world, but to live as those washed in the blood of the Lamb and welcomed into the new Jerusalem. So how about you? You've been journeying through this book as well. You've read it, discussed it, quoted it, listened to it, explained. What will you do with Revelation and its message? You've seen that its message contradicts the modern escapist notions. It's a book for the church in every age. Its message was for the churches of Asia Minor in the first century, just as it continues to speak to the churches of the 21st century. Revelation calls for action as the redeemed of the Lamb. It challenges our alliances with the great harlot of the world. It demonstrates the incompatibility of those bearing the name of Christ with those bearing the mark of the beast. It urges us to live courageously in the midst of opposition and persecution. And John has shown us how to live in this world as the church of Jesus Christ. We must pursue faithfulness in the light of Christ's triumph at the cross that will be fully consummated when he returns as the king. And keeping an eye on the cross and looking for the return of the king encourages us to persevere in the faith. Now suppose you were to invite me home for dinner. And you say, Pastor, come tonight for dinner. I'm partial to those invitations. And I arrive at your house and you welcome in and immediately recognize that I've brought my own dinner with me. And you remind me, I, I invited you to dinner. I've prepared dinner for you. But I can't afford your dinner. I've brought my own that I've made for myself. Your food is too good for me, so I'll just eat my food. I know you invited me to dinner, but I can't believe you really meant for me to eat at your table. And you tell me, you've already paid for the dinner and you've already prepared it. There is no cost to me. You've already labored to make sure that the dinner is something that will satisfy my desires. And again, you welcome me to your table. Do you realize that many people treat Christ the same way? Christ has prepared a wedding feast for us. It cost his blood at the cross. It demanded that he battle all the powers of darkness on our behalf and face eternal judgment for us. And yet he spreads his table before us and welcomes us to a gospel feast. And yet some prefer to bring their own pathetic food that can never satisfy the hunger of the soul. Some think that Christ welcomes others, but not them. Some think surely Christ will pull the food from the table before they get there. Hear the gospel invitation. Let the one who is thirsty come. Christ is promised. John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You who feel the need, who recognize your sinfulness, and you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, your emptiness, your thirsting to be satisfied by Christ, Jesus tells you to come to him. And maybe you don't have intense feelings about this regarding your need for Christ. Maybe you don't have any feelings at all. 
but you simply recognize by the preaching of God's word that you're a sinner and you have need for Christ. Then the balance of verse 17 is for you. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The feelings are not there, but the desire for Christ is. You do want to know him. You do want forgiveness of sins and a relationship to God. You do want the life that only God can give. You have been waiting for a certain feeling of neediness, something that you imagined was necessary before you can be saved. And while you don't have it, you do have a will to be a Christian, but you're afraid that God won't accept you. Hear the word of Christ, the one who wishes, the one who desires, the one who wills take the water of life without price. It is yours. Christ offers you this living water. You cannot find it in the polluted wells of this world. It is found only in Christ. Come and take. Drink deeply from the wells of salvation. Drink the water of life. Come, drink, and live. This table is an invitation of Jesus Christ to you for everlasting life. I beg you to come. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. How appropriate that we're praying about the very Last invitation in the whole of the word of God. Come, come and take the free gift of the water of life. You say to each of us, you say to me, and I am thirsty and I do wish and I do come gratefully and expectantly. On the day you first revealed Jesus to me from the moment I had my first taste of the water of life, I became thirsty for more. For the bitter waters of my sin just bring more thirst. The deceiving waters of my broken cisterns fail to satisfy. The illusionary waters of all the deceptive mirages are just that, illusions. So once again, I bring my thirst to you. I'm thirsty to know Jesus better. I'm thirsty to be quicker in my repentance and slower in my excuses. I'm thirsty to grow more of your fruit and less of my thorns. I'm thirsty to be freer to love others as Jesus loves me. Slake these thirsts a little more by the waters of the gospel, the free gift of the water of life. And Jesus, speaking for all the people who are here this morning, we are thirsty. We're thirsty for the new heaven and the new earth. We're thirsty for the wedding feast of the Lamb when the bride will no longer say, come, but we are here, all of us. We are thirsty for the day when God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We are thirsty for the day of no more thirst. And of this I am profoundly certain you will satisfy all of these thirsts. We pray in the faithfulness of the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.